Well, we're back here tonight. Thanks for coming, and and uh, we're gonna. I'm excited to be able to share with you a little bit more here tonight. I just wanted to start with this, though. Only about 30 people per year die in an avalanche. So you can rest at ease. You don't have to worry too much right now. Actually, odds are you're going to die getting out of your bed more than dying in an avalanche. About 400 people a year die just getting out of their bed. I don't know how that's possible. And some of you young ones, don't try to use that with your parents. I, don't, I can't get up. I might die, Mom. You know, don't try to use that, okay? 30 people per year die in avalanches. But I'm still going to tell you how you can survive one just in case, okay? So if you're ever in a, an avalanche and you've just been covered in snow, here's what you have to do. Spit first, dig second. That's what you do. So it turns out one of the biggest mistakes people make when they've been covered in snow in an avalanche is that they just blindly start digging their way in a panic. I mean, that's obviously what I would be doing, no doubt. <clears throat> it, but the problem is it's really easy to start digging in the wrong direction. You have, you, you, you're just starting to dig yourself even deeper. You're burrowing, burrowing yourself in even deeper. So what you ha- you're supposed to do is you're supposed to push some snow away from your face and then spit. And then you'll know by gravity which way's down and which way's up. So gravity does the work for you in that case. So here's the truth tonight. And you could maybe just go home after this wonderful truth. When a man spits, he knows up from down. Okay? When a man spits, he knows up from down. That's great wisdom right there. But and uh, you can thank me later, maybe if you someday escape the, the avalanche. But this world that we live in is in a moral avalanche. People out in the world know less and less of which way is up and which way is down. They have no clue. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. It's right to allow a same-sex couple to be married. But it's wrong to tell a woman that she should not kill her baby. It's exactly. Wait, what? Sin is celebrated in our culture, as you know. Then, when it ruins someone's life, it's it's called a disease. Think about this. This is one I heard recently that makes us think. The world praises the hashtag MeToo movement, while at the same time, they make the the book Fifty Shades of Grey an all-time 10 best-selling book. I am confused. If our morals as Christians were to trend with the world, if we were just to kind of go with what everybody else is doing, we'll never know what's right, what's wrong. We'll never know what's up, what's down. We'll be in the avalanche with them. Thankfully, though, we have something steady. We have a rock to build our life on. We have, we have solid ground. We have God's word, and it never changes, and it always shows us which way is up and which way is down. Always. But sometimes we look in the Bible, and it just seems um, unconventional. It seems abnormal. There's something wrong with what I just read because the world is so upside down and our thinking tends to get upside down. We stop and we say, when we re- we're reading along, and we say, wait, what? Wait, what did I just read? 
It's a paradox. We just have read a paradox that God is using. And, and that's, you could be reading in Scripture many things, many moral things, but, but when you come across those paradoxes, it especially is confusing, and you're especially saying, what is God saying? What is he meaning by this? But Jesus loved to use paradoxes. He, just, he liked doing that. And I think it's because it shakes everybody a little bit. It's a stop-and-think moment. And he wants us to say, wait, what? Wait, what? Again, dictionary says that the paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Paradox. And Jesus loved paradoxes. And when Jesus told the paradox, they're always true. These paradoxes in the Bible can only be fully understood, though, by a person who's a Christian, really. They can only be fully understood by a person who has the Spirit of God living inside of them. And, um, and you really understand them when you're experiencing them and living them, and that's when you really get to see the truth of those things. I'm going to give three more of these, these statements that seem absolutely crazy at first glance from the world's point of view, but they make so much sense when we're starting to look at life the right side up. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, this, you know, Jesus is upside down. No, Jesus is right side up. The world is upside down. Here's the first three statements, and this we're going to take. It's the very first three statements that Jesus made in his Sermon on the Mount, the really catchy title, Sermon on the Mount, and, and the greatest sermon ever preached. Amazing, amazing words. So the first thing, the first little statement he makes in this sermon is, it's found in the Beatitudes there, but basically, I'm going to say it like this, and then we'll look at the scripture, happy are the poor. Happy are the poor. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed or happy, it's uh, another word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor. The word poor means destitute, bankrupt, broke, flat broke. Happy then are blessed are the bankrupt and broke. Blessed are the bankrupt and broke. What? Wait, what? Some of you actually are saying right now, oh, perfect, I got this one. I'm as broke as I ever could be, so I'm good. I'm super broke. Um, No, sorry, Jesus is saying poor in spirit. He's saying broke in spirit. In other words, we have nothing to offer in and of ourselves when we come to God. We have zero to offer God. It's acknowledging that I am spiritually empty. I'm spiritually poor. I'm spiritually broken when I come to Jesus. I don't bring anything to the table, just me. In me dwells no good thing, the Bible says. But the crazy thing is that when you look at this, when Jesus talks like this, the blessed are the poor in spirit. When we come with that, Um, attitude, he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He loves to fill that. He loves to bless that kind of attitude. The crazy thing is, when we're as empty as we can be and as broken as we can be, he loves that. Once we acknowledge who we really are, then Jesus comes and fills us up and he establishes his rule and his reign in our lives and in our hearts, and then he gives us those blessings of the kingdom. Now, in contrast, we look at the world because uh, you look at what everybody else is saying and it conf- it's confusing. 
they say you need to radiate self-confidence. You have to, you have, to be, uh, have self-sufficiency. But God says when we come to him, you, you need to come acknowledging the truth about your brokenness, that you are broken. <clears throat> really what we're talking about here is not a much, as much about being broken as it is as, uh, acknowledging that we're broken. Not as much about being broken, it's acknowledging that we already really are broken when we come to Jesus. We're broken and we need to be put back together. Coming to Christ is not like a job interview where we put all of our good points out there and we say, here, Jesus, here's what I'm coming with. I'm, I'm a pretty decent guy. I've got quite a bit of accomplishments. And, G, and, and G, really, it's, it's the exact opposite. It's honestly coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I have no good points. The table's empty. Can you do something, please, with this broken lump of clay? And that's what it refers to in Jeremiah 18. Let's go to Jeremiah 18 real quick. I want to just look at that wonderful passage that the, where God used a wonderful object lesson. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6, starting in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. God loves object lessons. He's sending the prophet down to where the potter makes all of his uh, special uh, stuff that he makes. <laughs> all his pottery. In verse 3, And then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred. It was ruined, that word means. It was destroyed. So here he is, the prophet, he's watching the potter work, and he notices there's a lump of clay that is messed up, it's destroyed, it's really worthless now. And typically, most potters would take that lump and throw it away and start over, but not this potter. So he, the verse says that, so he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make. It's... And God is about to use this illustration right in front of Jeremiah to say something amazing. And he's basically going to say it's God's sovereign right to do whatever he wants with that ugly, broken piece of clay. But look what the potter chose to do here. He chooses to remake it. He chooses to reform it and make it something beautiful. Verse 5, then the word of the Lord came to me. He's standing there watching and then the word of the Lord comes to him and he says, O house of Israel... Cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. God says, I will not throw you away. I'm not, I, I could, but I'm not going to. I'll remake you as it seems good to me. Aren't you glad God doesn't throw away people when they sin? Boy, I'd be, we'd be all thrown away a long time ago. God does not throw away people. We, we throw away our broken dishes. We do this all the time. They break, we, we throw it away. We even had one time, went on vacation and bought this beautiful handmade piece of pottery. And we got it home in literally not even a week and it was broken. And did we, what do we do with that now broken piece of pottery? We just threw it in the trash. It's good for nothing. It's worthless at this point. Jesus does not do that. In fact... It's our brokenness, the fact of those broken pieces. It's, the, it's that brokenness that makes us one of a kind. 
and it makes our story powerful. There's an ancient art called kintsugi from the Japanese culture. And kintsugi means, the actual word means golden joinery or golden repair. It's centuries old, and what they do is they take broken pottery, and then they, they mix a special lacquer that has powdered gold, silver, or aluminum, or platinum, excuse me, and they take that, and they be, fill the cracks. <clears throat> and then, at that point, the, the, uh, this pottery actually, most of the time, becomes even more valuable in the end. The fact that it was broken gives it a whole new, more interesting story. And, something, and even more beauty in a certain way. It certainly gives it more character. But that's what you see God doing in the Bible over and over and over again with the people in God's Word. He takes broken people and He gives them a story. And the story is that God has power. That God has power to fill the cracks. God has power to remake you. He doesn't throw people away. He uses people. But the thing is, we still have to come as broken people. We have something broken in our lives. We're not, we, can't, we have to come with a humble attitude. The problem is most people come to Jesus they want, wanting to be made whole without having to be broken. They want to be made whole without having to be broken. But God says, come to me, admit you're broken, admit all those flaws, bring them all out there, lay them all out on the table, tell me who you really are, be honest, Get it all out there, and I can work with that. The blessing can't come until there is a helpless person that comes and acknowledges who they really are. It's honesty. So if you want to be blessed, if we want to be blessed, if we want to gain the blessings of the kingdom, we have to come to God with a poor spirit, with a broken spirit, and a brokenness, a sense of brokenness. The next phrase Jesus gives in this Sermon on the Mount <clears throat> is also an amazing paradox, but it's, and it's, but it's even a greater paradox, in my opinion. Number two, happy are the sad. Happy are the sad. What? <laughs> Wait, what? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, blessed, happy. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Wait, what? Happy are those who weep. Happy are those who cry. Happy are those who mourn. I'm not getting it, Jesus. You're going to have to explain that one. And he does in other places. Jesus loves getting people to stop and think. And this one is a doozy. Happy are the sad. One, one uh, uh, Bible scholar, William Barclay, on the word mourn, here's what he says. He says, the Greek word for mourn used here is the strongest word for mourning in, in the Greek language. It is defined as the kind of grief which takes such a hold that it cannot be hidden. It is, the only, it is not only the sorrow which brings an ache to the heart. It is the sorrow which brings an unrestrainable, unrestrainable tears to the eyes. Have you ever been in a moment like that where it's just unrestrainable tears, unrestrainable sadness? You, you can't help but show it. It just comes out. Personally, I hate tears. I, I don't like crying is what I mean. I don't like sadness. I don't like crying. I will avoid crying at all costs, to be honest with you. Uh, I don't like sad movies. I don't like sad stories. I don't like sad books. I'd rather live in a fairyland, basically, is what I guess I'm saying. 
It's probably a control issue on my part when I think about it. You know, when somebody makes me cry or I've watched a movie, because they can get me. Those movies, those little, sometimes they'll say, they can get me. Once they've gotten me, I feel like you've exercised some kind of power over me, haven't you? Causing these uncontrollable liquid to fall from my face. This is not right. And so I don't know what it is, but anyway, I do not like to cry. And if I were writing the Beatitudes, given my personality that way, I would probably write, happy are the happy. And that pretty much makes a lot more sense to me. Happy are the happy. But God knows something about sadness and mourning and suffering that, that I don't know. He knows something about mourning and suffering that's good for me somehow. And so what is it? Well, here's the important piece of this puzzle. If there were no mourning, if there were no sadness, if there were no weeping, then we would not receive the special comfort from God. We would not be able to receive that all so close comfort. Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's in mourning we experience the blessing of God's presence. There's something very special about that presence of God. Here's how it works. We're grieving because there's this empty void inside of us, left by some type of suffering. Maybe we've lost stuff. You know, somebody's house burns down or... There's, there's all kinds of stuff we could lose. Or relationships. Uh, you've lost a relationship or you've lost some person that you dearly love. But that is when God rushes in to fill this void. I'm mourning, I'm weeping, I'm in suffering. But then all of a sudden, I sense God in a whole new way. There's a new level of closeness to Jesus that you never had before. And there's no embrace like God's embrace. There's no embrace like God's embrace. When we suffer, we mourn. When we mourn, we're comforted by God himself. Therefore, Jesus says, blessed are they who mourn. God will not waste your pain. You're out there thinking today, I've got a lot of pain. God will not waste that pain if we mourn with him. There's a story of a dear couple I heard about this week, Dick and Elizabeth Peterson. Dick and Elizabeth, they were happily married, enjoying life, doing well. And then one day, their world came crashing down. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. He watched his wife as she went from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair. And her life was dramatically changed. But not just her. His life was dramatically changed. And there was no way out of this. That's what hit them. They were at the mercy of a disease. Whatever happened with the disease is what would happen in their life. It controlled them. They prayed. Everyone prayed that they knew, but God did not choose to heal. But then one day a thought came to them that maybe God was not only doing something, or something wasn't just being done to them, but something was being done for them. One day, Elizabeth asked her husband, she said, did it really take this to teach me that my soul is more important to God than my body? Uh, Things were just changing. Their views of things were changing as they were going through this time of suffering and mourning. 
Then Dick asked God, he cried out to God, and here's where his words, he said, God, was this the cost of teaching me compassion? They started just having these aha moments with God, and and God came and filled all those voids, and, and boy, they experienced Jesus in a whole new way. They came to realize that God was wanting them to experience a brand new way and a new deeper life, a deeper life with them, with him. Now, there was no change to her condition on the outside, but there was certainly a change in their condition inwardly. Something, there were big changes. And remember, there's nothing life can throw at us. There's nothing that life can throw at us that God cannot use to draw us nearer to him. It's, but when Jesus speaks of mourning here, when I think of the, the mourning of suffering, it's so sad. But that's not it. That's not just it. I think, I think Jesus means something else here too. And that is, it includes, I believe, a mourning over sin. James chapter 4 talks about that. In James chapter 4, verse 8, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands Ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Here is this paradox again. Mourn and humble yourself to be lifted up. When is the last time, I ask everybody here, when is the last time that you mourned over sin? Your own sin or the sin of our society? The things that we see around us. We talk about it and we rail on it, but when's the last time we really had a deep sense of mourning over this? You know, when you think about the word sin, no one likes that word anymore. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you heard anybody that was not in church use the word sin? They use mistake, indiscretion, unfortunate choice, all of this. In fact, it's, I heard that the Oxford Junior Dictionary recently tried to remove the word sin altogether out of the dictionary. And the point was it's, it's, it was considered too old, antiquated, it's not being used anymore. They've already taken out the word iniquity and some other similar words. Uh, but they were just kind of make, trying to make a clean sweep, I guess. But you know what? We can wipe out sin. We can wipe out sin out of the dictionaries if we want to, but we cannot wipe it out of our souls. If we fail to acknowledge our sin, we fail to mourn over our sin. We have to begin with acknowledging it. If we fail to mourn, then we fail to confess. And if we fail to confess, then we miss the blessings of God's forgiveness and His grace. We miss the blessing of God's comfort when we need it. And that's the blessing of mourning over sin. God rushes in with, with, with forgiveness. Think of David in Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 3, he said, When I kept silence, that is, I had this sin, but I wasn't confessing it. I wasn't letting it out. I wasn't bringing it to God. I was holding it in. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. That sounds like a pretty good description of, of your conscience grabbing you. Another description. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Verse 5, I, then he turned a corner. He said, I acknowledged my sin unto thee 
and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Boy, what a change. You know, at first, it's much easier to deny our sin. It's, it's, it's the, it feels like the natural thing to do, just deny it, and it's very easy. But then that sin begins to become a huge weight around our neck, and it weighs us down. Our bones ache, as he's talking about here. We can't sleep, and we can't think straight. But when we come to the place where we mourn over this, and we confess it, and we get it out there with Jesus, and we get it out there where it needs to be, we begin to experience the cleansing power of forgiveness. And, the, and, and that cleansing water that just begins to wash over us. You see, we're thinking, happy are the happy. But Jesus says, happy are those who mourn. It's time, it's, there is a time to mourn over our sin. I, I make jokes about things all the time, and, and uh, I have to be so careful because, because sometimes we're make, I'm making light of something that's very, very evil and, and hurtful. And I'm not saying we need to walk around in black and you know, sackcloth and ashes all the time, but I think there, are, there ought to be seasons in our life where we go ahead and be afflicted and mourn over our own sin, take some time and just meet with God privately and really do some soul search. I think there is a time for that, and we've got to use those times. When's the last time you mourned over, before God over your selfishness? When's the last time you mourned over your pride or your gossiping or your vanity or your unloving attitude or your unsubmissiveness? When's the last time you mourned over your critical spirit or your cheating or your lust? You and I will fall into sin. Everyone does. Everyone does. But when we're slow to mourn over that, then we're slow to receive the blessing of forgiveness. we got to keep going back to the Lord. Mourn. Mourn and you will receive the comfort from God. Now lastly for tonight on this list of paradoxes is number three. And Jesus here is talking about being humble, but he says, in my words, is happy are the humble. Happy are the humble. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Have you ever noticed that it does not seem like the meek are inheriting the earth at this time? It seems like the rich are inheriting the earth, and the arrogant, and the movie stars, and the CEOs. It seems like those are the people that are inheriting and getting everything. Have you ever seen the show Shark Tank on TV? You know, those guys sit there, and they're all lofty, and they have all the money, and you got to come in there, and you have to... They're big bullies, and you, you're supposed to come in there. And a lot of that's staged. But, but it kind of uh, presents this common understanding that don't let anybody put you down. you got to get in there, and you got to, you know, uh, bull yourself around. And, but Jesus says, listen, happy are the ones who are meek. In the end, happy are the ones who are meek. Because they're going to get the king's inheritance. They get the king's inheritance. A meek person is gentle. That's what this word means. The, the word, this word here that Jesus used is a word that means gentle. It's gentle toward others, but not, it's not gentle because that comes naturally. So it's not just because you're a gentle person naturally. Some people are just gentle, more gentle naturally. That's not what this is talking about. This is a gentle toward others because you're humble. It's because you understand that I have no God-given right 
to walk over anybody else. I have no God-given right to be above any person. See, the other, these other two Beatitudes were more inward and toward God. This one is more toward others. It's a person who understands I have no right, no God-given right to avenge myself. That's God's business. He is in the avenge business. <laughs> He'll handle that. I don't avenge myself. It's a person who understands I have no right to treat people wrongly. I have no right. And by, with that humility, that huge amount of humility, they put themselves in the right place. And God loves this. God loves this attitude of meekness. The, uh, he's, Moses was the most meek man in all the earth, the Bible says. The blessings of God come to those who choose to be humble and choose to be meek and take that meek position before men. As you've heard before, Jesus right, now, right there is saying, the way up is down. You've got to come down. Okay, Jesus gave us a good story of this, a great example of the concepts that people have about meekness and uh, where, where Jesus is and then where the world is and so many others are. Luke 18, the, Luke 18, this amazing parable that Jesus gives. Luke 18, verse 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other... A publican. A publican. And those guys, they were tax collectors, of course, but they weren't just tax collectors. They were Jewish tax collectors that were working for the Romans. So they were hated above everybody by the Jews. Uh, they were the lowest of the low. There's, there's prostitutes, and then there's publicans. And these guys are down there. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself, here's, here comes a paradox, if, in case you're not ready for it. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Here's that paradoxical statement. The Pharisee is there, and he's comparing himself with the tax collector. He's, he's, trying, he's noticing that he's much better, he does a lot more. Uh, better stuff than this publican. And so he thinks he's better based on his works, based on the, his deeds, the things that he does. The publican doesn't compare himself to anybody. He only compares himself to God. And so then he humbles himself. He realizes he is a sinner, and he doesn't even worry about what everybody else is doing. It's obvious because he's making a fool of himself in one way. He's beating on his chest. He's not lifting up his eye. I mean, he's just... He's in weep mode. He's in confession mode. And can I just say this? When I look at this story, and you know, uh, we, you know, you start to play some mental gymnastics, and you wonder, who am I in the story? Who am I in the story? Well, let me just say this. Uh, I think we all have a tiny Pharisee living inside of us, and he wants to come out sometimes. We've all had those moments where we say. I'm sure glad they're here listening to this message. <laughs> I'm sure glad he's here. I'm sure glad she's here listening to that. Or, boy, why isn't he here tonight at church on a Sunday night? Why isn't she here 
And we start to play those games in our mind, thinking about that. You know, if I was standing there at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was giving this story, and he said, uh, blessed are the meek, I would have been thinking uh, of someone at that moment. I would say, man, I'm glad he's here to think, see, hear what Jesus is saying about being meek. I am really glad. I hope, I hope, I hope he's listening. The truth is, actually, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to a whole crowd of people that think that Jesus is talking to another crowd of people. That's how we tend to be when we listen to things. Have you noticed it's easier? It doesn't take, and this is an amazing truth, it, it doesn't take any of the Holy Spirit's power to see sin in other people. But it takes a lot of grace to see sin in myself. It takes a lot of the Holy Spirit's work. I'm a big Pharisee, especially in my car. I got to tell you, there have been times when I've been in the car with my young children, and my young children will say to me, Dad, who are you talking to through the window, you know? Who are you talking to? And who are you yelling at, you know, basically? Um, well, you, I mean, hey, listen, in my defense, you should see how everyone drives out there, except me, you understand? It, it, I, don't, I don't, listen, and this is the other thing, I don't usually call out people of, the, of my own gender, at least, okay? So, see, that's what I'm saying. I am definitely a car Pharisee, I'm telling you. But Jesus says uh, that the Pharisee here, just like I did, you start giving, in your mind, you go through these mental things, and you start thinking of the ways you're better, and, and you, you, you start, to, as he did, give a list of accomplishments and all the things that you've done, as if... The things that I've done, the works that I've done, the deeds I've done, uh, if that determine where my heart is, as if some act of service determines where my heart really is, my outward, that's a bad place to be. You know, the Pharisee was only required to fast once a month, according to, the, according to God's law. But he, he says here, I fast twice a week. He throws out there how awesome he is. <laughs> and I suspect we think like this sometime. Well, Jesus, I've done this and this. I've even gone over and above what you've asked me to do. I've done this and this. I've, I've done all these things. But you know what? Jesus knows the true me. He knows who I am when I'm all alone with him. And that's the true me. That's the real me is the me that I am when I'm all alone with Jesus. There's a great way though, to force yourself into this meekness mode. When you start to feel that tiny Pharisee starting to talk to you and you start feeling a little, some of those thoughts creeping up, here's what we have to do. We have to force ourselves into meekness and ask the Lord to help us do this. Do what Jesus says and humble yourself. If you want to be exalted, humble yourself. People sometimes look at humility as a passive thing. You know, I was humbled when somebody did this or somebody said this. I was, I was humbled when this happened to me. But it's actually a command. When you see it in the Bible, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Actually, did you know that the Bible actually never says to be humble? It doesn't say be humble. It says humble yourself. Um, it's a command. It's not a feeling. I don't feel humble. Um, it's not about feeling humble. Like, I feel humble today. I think I'm, much, I feel, I think I'm doing a lot better. No, that's not what it says. It says humble yourself. That would be like saying... Um, like you're feeling that exercised, you know. I've, I feel that exercise today. I feel, I feel in good shape. I, I feel good. I feel, 
feel that I've done what I needed to do. No, when, when, you, when it comes to exercise, you have to do it. You have to force yourself. You don't just think exercisey thoughts. We need to purposely do things that force us to be humble. If we purposely force ourselves to do those things that are humble, humble yourself, humble yourself. Do things that are humble. Get out there and be humble. Do humble things. That will lead to meekness. When you're mistreated at work, when you're mistreated at home, humble yourself. When, you, when, when someone else gets the credit for what you did at work, humble yourself. When you're, when you're only 20% in the wrong and they're 80% in wrong, humble yourself. When you, get what you ex- when you don't get what you expected, when you don't get what you thought was coming to you, humble yourself. When you're irritated with somebody, humble yourself. We have to do things that will humble ourselves. I end with this story. Nick Walenda, he's a tightrope walker. And he walked across Niagara Falls in 2012 with huge TV ratings. In 2013, he decided that he would become the first man to walk across the Grand Canyon. And he did so. Amazing. But after the event was done, it's the most interesting part of this. After the event was done and the people started, the cameras were being taken down and the huge crowd started to leave. He didn't get in his limo and take off. Nick actually stayed there and spent three hours cleaning up the debris that all the people had left behind. He was just cleaning up. And somebody asked him why he was doing it, and here's what he said. He said, three hours of cleaning debris is good for my soul. Humility does not come naturally to me. So if I force myself into situations that are humbling, so be it. I do it because it's a way of, to keep from tripping. As a follower of Jesus, I see him washing the feet of others. I do it because if I don't serve others, I'll be serving nothing but my own ego. <laughs> it's good, huh? That's the kind of attitude we got to put on. That's the kind of attitude we have to do each and every day. Even if you're not a tightrope walker, we got to remember this. Pride goes before a fall. And Jesus loves to bless those who humble themselves. He's looking for people who humble themselves. In fact, he says the meek will inherit the earth. He's not going to hold back anything. He doesn't want to hold back anything to those that are humble and those that are meek. I think that is a promise for blessings here and certainly a promise in the future. Imagine how things would be different. Imagine how things would be different in our inner lives and in our public lives if we adopted just these three Beatitudes right here. This would just be an amazing turnaround in our homes and in our lives inwardly. Let's pray tonight. Father.